0: So Tom and Joanne Doyle here with Good News from the Middle East and today is a special day right Joanne?
1: Oh my gosh it is. This is not just a Tom and Joanne Doyle talking with a sweet friend. This is a group conversation, so we've got part of our um, Uncharted team with us. Of course, Tom and I, we've got our son Tommy, we've got Bruce Pepin, we've got Gina Castleberry, we've got Jessica Lash, and our special guest...
0: Is Heather Mercer, and wow, when you think about what's happened in Afghanistan uh, in the last month, uh, we go back to 20 years before, and there you were Mm. when the Taliban took you captive and you were there during 9-11 when everything happened. And totally amazing what God did. Heather, you uh, wrote a great book with Dana Curry. Mm-hmm. Your life has come full circle. We can't wait for our listeners to hear what you're doing now. But just welcome. It's so mm-hmm. good to Thank have you you.
2: It's really fun to be with your amazing team.
1: Oh. Oh. Okay, Heather, um, so one of the first things I think about is when Tom and I, I don't even know what year it was, when we were back in Iraq. And um, we were in this little coffee shop. Costa right. Coffee, or what Coast was Costa Coffee? And so Tom and I are sitting there, and we look across the way, and Tom, you are the one that noticed first. And what do you remember? What you said? Oh, I said
0: that's Heather Mercer, and Joanne said, "No, I don't think so. I think she has different colored hair." And I said, "No, I can tell. That's her. Her eyes, or smile." And Joanne said, "But we won't bother her today. She's probably busy." And I said, "We're totally bothering her. Come yeah, on, I'm we got to so go glad talk that with you her." Did. <laughs> I
2: totally remember that. Uh, oh my yeah, gosh, yeah, she knew you were a long so t- it, well, yes. a long time ago. Yeah. I mean almost 15 years Isn't ago wow. something and I will never
1: forget how sweet and kind and genuine mm. you were as soon as we met you it was like we knew you forever you mm. hugged us immediately we connected of course in Christ and it's been like that ever since yes
2: and then seeing each other back in Dallas and Plano yeah. and officing out of the Hope Center that's right at the same time so it's it's been an amazing connection through all those years well
0: this there's so much good news to share and but take us back to the time in your life when you were kidnapped and I remember everything happening in America 9-11 all this and then realizing that there's two young girls in their 20s -hmm. that the Taliban has our first thoughts were they're dead Mm -hmm. there's there's no way they're gonna survive can you take us back and tell us what happened
2: yeah, so that was, you know, of course, in 2001, and we'd been arrested on August 3rd in the days leading up to 9-11. Um, and the Taliban were gaining power across the country. That was about the same time that they had bombed the Buddha statues, the ancient Buddha statues in Bamiyan. they were forcing all non-Muslims to wear a yellow star. Mm and uh, it was a very volatile time and i was working with an international ngo that was doing work with primarily widows and orphans so i had you know my projects i was working on living my best life loving being in afghanistan expected to stay for the rest of my life and um, on august 3rd uh, we had gone to dana my colleague and i had gone to visit an afghan home that we had been investing in for quite a while. They were very poor. They were part of, uh, one of our street kid programs. And, uh, we went, uh, on that day and they had inquired about, uh, spiritual things and we'd had a lot of spiritual conversations. They wanted to know more about Jesus. And, uh, so we'd offered to share the Jesus film with them the Campus Crusade, or crew, I should say, Mm -hmm. uh, film that has been translated into almost every language around the world. And we sat there that Friday afternoon and uh, watched the Jesus film together, not knowing at the time that it was actually a setup. And the Taliban had infiltrated that family, and a lot of their inquiry was um, a part of a trap. And so uh, Dana had left a few hours before I did. I left uh, early that evening um, and the Taliban were waiting for me. So they took over my, my taxi and ended up bringing me to uh, what became known to us as the uh, Ministry of the Prevention of Vice and the Promotion of Virtue. It was their headquarters. Uh, where they would imprison people who were not following the strict form of Islam that they were requiring, and we were put into to prison. Dana and I, and eventually they captured eight of us that worked with our organization, two men and six women, and then 16 of our Afghan colleagues, and and that began, you know, quite a quite an incredible journey Mm.
1: okay all of y'all sitting here in the circle do you guys remember that on the news what were some of your thoughts what were some of your thoughts when you saw that unfolding I'll speak at once
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean I at that time it was prior to 9-11 I don't think I knew very much about the Middle East and Muslim people Um, still in high school but I do remember the news um, and my parents telling me about, you know, we got to pray for these, these Christian young women who just got kidnapped. Um, and I just remember thinking, I don't think they have much of a chance. And this was prior to 9-11,
3: right. which was you know, about to take place. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. What
1: about you, Bruce? Certainly you remember. Oh, yeah. I
3: vividly remember, and it, it went viral on the news. Mm-hmm. It, we, we started hearing about these two young Christian missionaries in Afghanistan that were captured and it just was everywhere. And of course, we were gripped by the story. But again, Tommy, like you were saying, we thought, how how are these women ever mm-hmm. going to make it out alive? Mm-hmm. But the prayer that was going up, yes. so much prayer and intercession, and we were just waiting and, and hopefully mm-hmm. uh, just asking God for deliverance. Right. and. Eventually, you know, the story unfolds, but it was just gripping. It was to Mm -hmm. see it.
1: Gina, do you remember during that time? um, I'm sure, like Ruth just alluded to, were you just so enthralled with this story? Were you one of the many millions around the world praying? One of the people that were just praying with everybody else for that. You know, it was all beyond my grasp a lot, but I just knew the urgency and and the desire to want to pray for. Yeah. Mm Pray for what you were doing. So not having an idea any kind of outcome or anything. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the thing so many people mm-hmm. that never met you of course were praying. How about you yes. Jessica? You may have, were you old enough to remember that scenario situation?
3: Yeah, I don't remember the fullness of uh everything unfolding, but I do remember reflecting on it and wondering um what it would be like to be in those shoes. Um mm-hmm. I think that um the idea that there were two girls who were willing to um, spend their life investing and putting, putting themselves in a risky position for the yeah. sake of others really challenged me and I think um, uh, helped to dig some roots for me personally. Mm-hmm. Um, so I remember those kind of personal reflections of thinking, how yeah. could I do that? If I was taken, what would I do? Right. How would I respond in prison? Wow. Yeah. wow.
0: So I think you know a definitive question for Americans is where were you when 9-11 happened? Mm-hmm. In fact, on the 20th anniversary, we were in New York City, celebrating that, uh, not celebrating, but remembering that with a conference and some dynamic speakers and heroes, firemen, chaplains, police. And so that was the common question. Where were you on 9-11? And everybody recounts their story. Tell us about you on 9-11. How did you even find out about what was going on in America?
2: Yeah, 9-11 obviously was a, a very interesting day for the whole world, but sitting in, a Taliban prison on 9-11 and not knowing what had happened on 9-11, it was almost like we we missed what the whole world had ju- just experienced. Mm-hmm. But we knew something had happened because one of my captors walked into our, our cell actually that afternoon. But prior to him walking in, it was about 12 o'clock noon on 9-11 and my mother had just landed in Afghanistan mm-hmm. on a U.N. plane to come help try to negotiate our release. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there were no flights going into Afghanistan. There were there was no active airport. So um, the fact that she was there, my father had already gotten there. And then my captor walks into our cell that afternoon, about three o'clock and he says there has been a plane crash over Washington DC and New York City 400 people died and America thinks the Taliban are to blame mm-hmm. and it just didn't make sense i thought what what is he talking about and i thought you know this how do planes crash into each other over two cities mm-hmm. And it's tragic any time a plane crashes, but why is my Taliban captor telling me this story in a prison? So there were just a lot of things that didn't connect. Well, fast forward a little bit later in the day, we get to visit our parents in the interrogation room for about 30 minutes. and as relieved as I was to see them I also hated that they were there because I knew now their lives were in danger well after that supervised visit they went back to the UN guest house where they were staying and watched the second plane crash oh, into the, the World Trade Center and they thought it was a movie everyone was sitting around watching this on TV and they thought it was a movie and within a few minutes they realized that they daughter and the others were were in the hands of the people who had done it and so they ended up uh, being evacuated out on the very last UN flight getting any civilians out of the country and barely made it out themselves and my mom reflected the story you know after we eventually made it out she actually had to go to the Taliban uh, visa office to get an exit visa to leave Afghanistan after 9-11. So she's literally going to the Taliban wow. asking for permission to leave. While you're, and, her
1: daughter's still in while, captivity. While
2: we're still <laughs> in, in captivity. Wow. And in the days leading up to 9-11, uh, the Taliban had brought us to trial uh, before the Afghan Supreme Court. And it was all all orchestrated and coordinated. Uh, around the events that they knew were coming,
0: mm. wow, what so. happened there? what happened at the at the court?
2: so we got there it was uh, September eighth and right after that they the Taliban assassinated the opposition leader who was holding the Taliban back from gaining control of the whole country, so that man was assassinated on the ninth and then of course two days later nine eleven happens and the supreme court case that was uh, started against us we were being charged with a capital crime tried under Islamic law which was the first time in the modern history of Afghanistan that they had tried foreigners under Islamic law which meant that if they convicted us which was fully their intent that we would be executed and uh, it was, it was quite, um, quite a wild scene I mean I remember walking into the courthouse not really knowing that it was the courthouse. But by that point, the media had gotten into Afghanistan, and there were hundreds and hundreds of media just circling the building. And we'd been inside the walls of a prison. We had no idea what was going on outside. Mm -hmm. And they lead us into this room, not a very big room, which is the Supreme Court. And I just remember the hundreds and hundreds of shoes that were sitting outside Mm -hmm. the door Mm -hmm. because everybody took their shoes off before he walked in and my father was oh, sitting in the third row. Wow. And this room was packed like sardines and he just looked at me and I just looked at him and I and he was like saying I'm I'm here like I'm not wow. going anywhere. Wow. And I hmm. was put in a in the row in front of him so I was able to reach back and hold his hand oh, as this this trial started. But I'll never forget it was just the darkness and the very opaque evil that was filling this room, and most of the justices um, were all high.
3: <coughs> Unlike
2: opium, like opium. A- yes. Oh, oh wow.
1: So Heather, I've got a question. There you are sitting there. As you just described, I can feel that. I'm sure y'all can feel it too, the darkness. And you said the room just felt opaque with the evil around you. So here you are, 24 years old, reaching back, holding your dad's hand. So what is that doing to your heart? What are some of the emotions that are going through your mind?
2: I mean, it was definitely a very scary situation because we knew that they weren't going to let us go. But just having my dad sitting there, I, I can't really even describe it, except he made me feel safe mm-hmm. when there was nothing to feel safe about. And in the days before he arrived in Afghanistan, after we had been captured, I told my, my colleagues and teammates, I said, you know, my dad will be the first one into mm. afghanistan and he will take on the taliban to make sure he brings his daughter home oh. and he did wow. and uh one of the most touching experiences of my life was um when my dad wrote a formal letter to mullah omar who was the supreme leader of the taliban at that time who had actually ordered the the fatwa for to get us arrested mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He wrote a letter to Mullah Omar, and said, "If you will let my daughter go, I will take her place in prison, oh, and I no. will fulfill whatever punishment uh, she wow. receives." Wow! And you know, to me, that isn't that what Jesus it's, did it's for exactly us? Right. right picture of your father? Yeah. He, my father, was willing to take my place in prison. Suffer the penalty that I deserved to pay, or the Taliban thought I deserved to pay, so that I could go free and uh, never a, a more visual picture of what Jesus did for all right. of us redemption
0: mm. yes wow, so well. we have um, we've got to get to the rescue tell about the rescue <laughs> how that happened and I mean things were moving pretty fast on that day. Well, Before were. that real quick, what happened in Afghanistan after 9/11? How quick was it that the US came in and declared war? Wasn't it almost in a few days the US declared war? So, they
2: the war started officially on October 7th and we were sitting in prison when the first bomb dropped. And I remember looking at my Afghan ward, the wardens who were Uh, monitoring the prison and she just looked up at the sky as the bomb started to fall and we knew that the war had started so that uh october 7th and we were there in the midst of all the airstrikes and the the bombing raids and you know we were in the taliban in a taliban prison so the taliban knew they had assets that if they brought us into their prison, then they could protect their own arsenals and their, their own weapons and their own mm-hmm. tanks. Right. So we could hear the Taliban in their ammunition depot on the floor above our cell. Oh, my goodness. And they would bring their tanks in, and so they would shoot the tanks right outside the wall of our cells. So, I mean, it was being in the... I mean, we were in the middle of... Wow. These, these battles. You were in and the bullseye. So, and mm-hmm. so it was very intense. I mean, you know, went to bed at night, not knowing if we'd wake up in the morning, never really sleeping uh, for weeks on end because you the sound of the bombing raids all the time. So it was, it was a very, very mm-hmm. intense and, and dangerous time. And we, we knew that some at some point this would come to an end, but we weren't sure how it was going to end. Was the US going to take back Kabul and then find us in the prison? Was the Taliban going to flee and take us on the run with them? So we were just trying to respond to what was happening day to day. And uh, about the middle of November, the war was really intensifying. Kabul was being bombed day and night and the Taliban were getting very antsy and they started moving us from one prison to the next so that the US government couldn't track our location. And one night, uh, in the middle of the night, they came into our cell and they forced us to get up and, and go and we didn't know where we were going. And the men that came that night uh, were dressed for war. I mean, you, they had their faces wrapped, you could only see their eyes. They mm-hmm. had ropes of ammunition. Around their neck, and you know, dressed you know, for war, uh, rocket mm-hmm. launchers and AKs, and so they forced us into the back of a pickup truck, and they said, "We're taking you back to your old prison." Well, we knew that wasn't true, but we had no choice. And they put us into this pickup truck and started drive started to drive outside the city of Kabul. And we could hear on their shortwave radio that Kabul had just been taken back by Mm -hmm. the Northern Alliance and the coalition forces. And we thought we've lost our chance. And at that point, the U.S. didn't know where we were anymore because we were just in a random vehicle with all the thousands of fleeing Taliban that were uh, escaping the the Americans and the coalition mm-hmm. coming mm-hmm. to Kabul. So we're on this, in this pickup truck driving through the middle of the night through the mountains of Southern Afghanistan and our driver. And these, these were some, these were not the nice guys. Mm-hmm. And he says, we want you to call the U S government and ask for $6 million. And if we get $6 million, then we'll let you go. And this is something that I always, I laugh about now, but the other ladies on the team who had a lot more faith, I think, than I did, they said, you know, we've been praying that Jesus is going to get us out. We don't want money to get us out. And I said, well, you can give me that, that telephone and I will call and ask for however (laughs) much money we need that God can use anything. So, um, but there was no satellite phone. There was no call. There was no request. And we spent the night uh, in the mountains in a steel shipping container, mm. and that's they were using these containers for POWs, mm. and they would put the POWs in, in these containers, and then they'd throw in grenades <sighs> to kill them, or they'd lock them in and leave them to suffocate. And so I I said, I, I'm not going to go in the container. And these Taliban kept trying to convince me that the container was a nice place to be, and I should, <laughs> I should go in and join my friends. And I said, no, I'm not going into the container. And then slowly they just started to encircle me, and finally my team leader looked at me, and he said, Heather, they will kill you. Get inside this container right now. And I stepped inside the container, and as soon as I got in, they tried to lock us in. Oh, boy. And so I jumped out and I said, you can, you can kill me, but you're not locking me into this container. And so they didn't lock the container. They pulled a pickup truck in front of the, the opening so we couldn't run away. But they left the container open that wow. night. And we were safe. And they came back in the morning and put us back in the pickup truck. And we ended up in a, in a village called Ghazni on the way to Kandahar and they put us into what became our fourth and thankfully final prison and as soon as we ended up in this prison, uh, the US started airstrikes in this village of strategic Taliban uh, arsenals and we thought, you know, the coalition had made it overnight to this city and there was a tiny little window in our room and we just we were trying to, you know, peek out up on the wall and and we could see all the Taliban running away from the prison. And so we thought they were going to fight the front lines had come to this area and we could hear all the bombing and the, the, the air And then after about 20 minutes, the whole city just got quiet and you couldn't hear a sound and everyone had disappeared. And so my teammates and I were just sitting in this room looking at each other We'd been on our faces, just crying out to Mm -hmm. God for a miracle. And then we heard a group of men come and start trying to break through what sounded like the the front door of the prison. And we could hear them breaking through this barricade, and they were screaming, yelling, chaos, and we started to hear them running up the stairs. And I know, I thought, this is it. The Taliban are, are back. We're the only civilian americans left in this country and they're mad and we have 30 seconds left to live and i remember just i was hiding under a table and just praying jesus if this is if this is it then give us grace to die honoring you and in that moment this afghan man came running in and he I, he looked like Rambo <laughs> and his hair was sticking up and he was covered in d- dust from head to toe and he had a rocket launcher in one hand and an AK in the other and he starts yelling you're free you're oh free my gosh. the Taliban have left and you're free and we're like what does that mean like wh- how do we get out of here and, and within seconds this room fills with all of these opposition fighters that were opening up the prisons looking for their own prisoners of mm. war. And they found us and immediately knew who we were because the mullahs had been preaching about us in the, in the mosques on Fridays. And so they realized that they had found these Americans and Europeans who were in Kabul. And so they said, let's go, let's go. And so we literally just started running out of the prison Um, to where we had no idea and in the in the hours that that followed we walked through the old city streets of this village that had just been liberated themselves Mm. by the from the taliban Mm. and as we're walking through the streets i I say it was kind of like the Macy's Day Parade and we were the lead float because <laughs> yeah. there were these Afghan freedom fighters that were leading, the, showing us the way. And all these Afghans were coming out into the streets and they were, they were waving at us and they were saying, congratulations, Aww. you're free. Wow. And then we're waving back and saying, congratulations, you're free. And That moment, it was November 13th, uh, 2001 and, and the Lord says, Heather, this is why I didn't let you go a day sooner because I wanted you to be set free with the people you came to serve. And it was, it was like literally walking through the pages of history Mm -hmm. and, um, yeah,
0: Wow.
1: That's beautiful.
0: Wow. I'm glad you brought that up, Tommy. That was a lot that we could have missed. Thank you. Beautiful So picture. then the rescue. You're there. The area you're, you're in is free. How, how were you?
2: Yeah. So we, we had to hide out in the home of an Afghan family for the next 36 hours. And um, it actually was the home of a Taliban commander who had changed sides that morning when the <laughs> Taliban were defeated. So that's someone to trust. Yes. <laughs> and so we hid out in his house until someone came to the door and said to myself and my uh, American teammate, Dana, uh, you need to go to the Red Cross, someone is there to see you. And so we put on a burqa, we got in a taxi, pulled the curtain, drove to the Red Cross, knocked on the door and an Afghan man answered and said, "Uh, walk to the back of the house and pretend like you need the restroom. So we started walking to the back and out of the back of the house comes our Taliban captor. And now he's dressed in civilian clothes and he comes and shakes our hand and he says, "Uh, I've brought you a satellite phone. And turns out that he had started working as a double agent essentially and was helping the US track what the Taliban was doing with it, with us from the inside and he brought us a satellite phone he said you need to call this number and then he turned around and poof he was gone he never saw him again in, until much later and we called the number and the U.S. uh, Embassy in Pakistan answered and said we have a a rescue mission that we have been working on for the last three months and we are coming in tonight with Chinook helicopters to get you out and so we, I mean it was just, it was beyond surreal Mm -hmm. and we took that message back to our team and the whole plan was we were supposed to be at the airport and we were supposed to wait there uh, for, the US military to come in and get us but the whole plan fell apart because the city was under martial law there was no way to get to this particular area that the airport was and so in the middle of the night these Northern Alliance fighters opposition fighters are now wanting to keep us in their control so that maybe they can get get some money money out of it right right and in the most dramatic type uh, type of situation, um, one of the guys who had us in his in his control changed his mind in a minute. And he said, come on, let's go. And we said, where are we going? He says, I'm taking you to the helicopters. Mm. So past the time that we're supposed to be found to a place that we had no business being in a complete city blackout there was no lights for anybody to even see where we were we tiptoed through this afghan neighborhood to a field and just sat there and waited and we started to see the helicopters circling overhead looking for us and they circled and circled for hours Mm. and could not find us and i don't know if you've ever heard a helicopter up close but they are so loud you can't hear the person next to you talking. So the whole city was awake. They knew that the US was coming. And they're wondering why, why are troops landing in our, in our village? So everyone was coming onto their rooftops trying to see what was going on in this field. And the Afghan uh, fighters that were with us said, we have to go back. We're, we're all going to be killed. The Taliban are still in the shadows and the ladies we looked at each other and we said no way we might die on this field tonight but we're not leaving and at that point I thought how do you know all the Girl Scout stuff you know from years ago like what can what can we do to get out of here right and the Lord says start a fire and I thought I don't have anything to start a fire so my German colleague had brought a little a little handbag with her really tiny not much bigger than your cell phone and I thought we're gonna see let's find matches and start a fire so I grabbed her bag and I started looking for matches and she said Heather there's no matches I've already looked I said we're gonna look one more time and there was a box of matches in the bottom of that teeny tiny little handbag and with those matches we started lighting our headscarves on fire and waving them like burning flags. And the helicopters came around and saw the fire. And that was, that was how they found us. Mm. And they had just been ordered from command to abort the mission mm. uh, because now their lives were at risk and they were running out of fuel. They were not going to have enough fuel to make it back. And the pilot of that mission... Said we're not leaving without them. We are gonna go around one more time, and see if we can see them. And that's when they saw the fire.
1: Wow. Oh my gosh, you paint a beautiful picture. My Can't you guys goodness. just see what's happening? Yes. Okay, so the fire's burning, mm-hmm. burning those hijabs. Yes. The helicopters come. Continue. We're all sitting at the edge of our seat.
2: Yeah. So, <laughs> we've got the the helicopters circle. They see us. Uh, they see the, the flames. And they swoop down over our heads so we know they've seen us. Well, then they take, they come low and they take off again. And it's 15 minutes, 20 minutes go by and we're thinking, where are they? Why aren't they? Like every second is life and death. And all of a sudden from across this field, and it's completely dark. You can't hardly see the hand in front of your face. We see this formation of men emerge from the shadows and at first we're not sure is it the Taliban who is it but we hear them yell from across the field are you the detainees <laughs> oh, yes yes so they 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 you know march over and they count us off and i mean all we want to do is run and i'm talking to i've I've grabbed the arm of the, the lead the lead soldier and he says, Is everybody okay? Yes, yes, we're fine, we're fine. And he's like, All right, we gotta we gotta walk out of here. We're thinking, Walk? Why are we walking out of here? <laughs> but the, the crazy thing was we could not see the helicopter. There were still no helicopters on the ground. And uh, I'm turning, looking at this guy, and I see him yelling to the shadows. And I realize then In those 20 minutes or so that had passed, they had dropped down and they'd set up a perimeter so that they could walk us safely through the village and get us on the helicopter, which is we walked through these little alleyways of this little Afghan neighborhood made up of all these little mud houses. We turn the corner and there is a Chinook parked in the backyard of this little mud house. And I remember thinking to myself, Star Trek just met the Flintstones. <laughs> <laughs> it was the the, the the most surreal scene to see this Chinook that was everything powerful and formidable and free in the backyard of this little Afghan mud house. And the the soldier yells in my ear. He says, find the, find a seat in the back, find a seat on the floor. And so literally on our hands and knees, we crawl in the back of this Chinook helicopter and I make my way to the front and I lean over to the pilot and I, I said, how high does this chopper fly? <laughs> Cause I wanted to know, are we out of range from being shot down with all the anti-aircraft guns that were on the tops of the mountain ranges? And he looks at me and he says, ma'am, you're going to be just fine. Aww. And I sat down on the floor of that Chinook, and I looked up as we started to float off, and there was an American flag pinned to the roof of the Chinook. And I just heard the Lord say, Heather, I didn't just set you free today, but I'm setting the Afghan people free. Mm. And... um it was a moment where it kind of all made sense.
0: Wow, what a story. It's hard to go on from that. I mean, really, we're all in tears here thinking about that. And of course, Americans rooting for you, hearing that there's been a a rescue, we couldn't believe it. I mean, all of us just thought they're dead. They have to be dead. And so, wow, let's fast forward. 20 years later. We want to hear what you're doing, but you were involved in another rescue. The fall of Afghanistan happened last month. And what happened? Your captor that became a double agent, what happened there?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, the the relationship with him has continued over the last 20 years. Uh, We've been neighbors for part of that and actually become very, very good friends. He has a wife and six uh, children. And, you know, I never would have imagined in those days that God would orchestrate a relationship with a man who himself was Taliban and then risked his life to save ours. And when the whole situation tragedy happened in Afghanistan last month, I called him from Iraq. And I asked him how he was doing, how people he knew in Afghanistan were doing. And he said, well, my whole family is in Kabul right now. And I said, what do you what do you mean? I mean, they were living here. And he said, we sent them back for the summer because my son was getting engaged, his mm. oldest son. Oh. And so his wife and six children were all in Kabul. And I think at first... You know, they, along with many people, thought, well, the Taliban are going to put on a new face. You know, they're not going to show the same colors that they did before. So it's going to be okay. And I said, no, it's not. You need to get out now because this is this is going to go downhill fast. And so um, in just the most ironic of ways... Uh, I and some friends uh, were able to help rescue his wife and his six kids and then 21 of their relatives and get them out of Afghanistan uh, in the last hours before there wasn't a chance to get out anymore. And, (laughs) you know, I just thought how it's such a full circle moment that the man who rescued me Almost exactly on the 20th anniversary of our captivity in 9-11, God allowed me to be a part of rescuing his family. Mm. And uh, so that relationship continues today. And his family is now back home, safe and sound uh, with all of their extended relatives. Wow. Okay, so
1: my, yeah, that's a miracle right there. Okay, so my question on this is, how are you praying for him now and his family? As you cry out to God for him, you've got this sweet relationship with his entire Mm -hmm. family. What is the cry of your heart for them?
2: Well, of course that that they would know the same Jesus that I know, um, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, the one who offers the only life, available. And, um, you know, we've had lots of conversations and he is still very devout and, um, has quite a lot of leadership in his community. And so I, I pray for the day that God opens his eyes and helps him to know the one that was worth being in prison for.
1: So the reason I brought that up is those of you that are listening, stop right now and pray for this gentleman, pray for him and his family. Um, Here he turns from being um, a captor to one that is now your rescuer and yet he still doesn't know Jesus because I think listening to the story, we could just assume, oh, this guy must have found Christ. And that's why he is such a close family friend of yours. But in fact, he's not, as you said, Mm -hmm. he's still a devout Muslim. So as you're listening, pause right now, pray for this gentleman. And he's got a huge extended family. Pray that he will find Jesus whether it's a dream, a vision, um, obviously he's had some divine encounters with you. He saw those miracles unfold over your life while you were there in Afghanistan. So he has seen, he's obviously a very intelligent man. Yes. He's got a lot of connections, um, but Jesus is pursuing him because right. you know if he is still alive and God has changed his heart, God is working, mm. but he still has not made that leap of faith.
0: So true, and I think about this, Heather, they got out of Afghanistan in the midst of the madness. As we were watching the airport, and Americans were being told, go to the airport, you couldn't get to the airport. It was just massive, thousands of people there. We heard of flights that finally got out that went to Qatar, and babies died of of dehydration. You know, there in the airport, it was just horrible. And then you see the plane going and people falling off, and they're trying to get to the airport, he experienced an incredible miracle getting there. His mm-hmm, family right. did. And so they've seen miracle after miracle after miracle. So yes. we pray that one day they're just going to realize who that God of miracles is. Yes. And so yes. and so anyway, I think about this full circle for you now. I think most people in their 20s would think, okay, well, I did the Middle East thing. That's it. Hollis, never going back there. <laughs> but not you. Can you tell the listeners what you're doing? This is... Truly exciting, one of a kind ministry out there. Mm. Tell them what you're doing.
2: Yeah, you know, after Afghanistan, and I wasn't able to go back. I had tried, and that that was just a a closed door. So the war in Iraq started in 2003, and I kind of thought, well, if it can't be Afghanistan, then maybe Iraq's the next best thing. And (laughs) so uh, landed in Iraq in 2003, and I've been there ever since. And working with the, the Kurds, primarily up in the Kurdish uh, region, um, which is actually known as Iraqi Kurdistan. Um, and it's been an amazing, an amazing journey. And just uh, at the 20th anniversary of 9-11, we were finally, after 15 years of laboring for it, able to establish a freedom work in Iraq Uh, with the inauguration of a place called the Freedom Center, which is basically a a community outreach epicenter uh, that has impact across uh, all of the Kurdish region and um, really focuses on seeing freedom and hope come to the Iraqi people in in all of its forms. I mean, that's physically, spiritually, um, psychologically, and so the Freedom Center is this beautiful, multi-purpose place where the Iraqis get to come and the Kurds come and get to see their God-given destinies fulfilled mm. and empowered. So, uh, you know, again, another one of those things where I wrestled with God and thought, why did, you know, why does it take so long? Why, mm-hmm. You know, the same kind of conversations I had with God in prison and then the actual inauguration happened on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Mm-hmm. And I that. just think, you know, God's writing an amazing story that's so much bigger than all of us. And sometimes we just, he's just asking us to, to walk that journey with him. And it's so much more beautiful than we could ever write ourselves.
0: Wow. Mm-hmm. And you know what, if I can think of one word that describes the average Muslim in the Middle East and Central Asia, and we hear it all over from our workers, is this hopelessness. Yeah, they feel absolutely. hopelessness. Tell yeah. about some of the reactions of young yeah. Iraqis that have come to the Freedom Center.
2: Yeah, it, there is, there's a pervasive hopelessness because they know that in the natural, there are no solutions to the things that they're facing day in and day out. And we see that in Afghanistan. I mean. 20 years trillions of dollars and in 24 hours that was all unraveled. And so for for these Kurds and and the people of Iraq, the Freedom Center, it's like a lighthouse that shines into this dark, vast ocean where there there are no solutions and and they can come and and begin to grab a hold of the things that they dream about for their own lives. So we had this group of college students that came during the days of the grand opening, and several of them came up at the end and said, we can't believe this place is for us. Like that this place would ever come to our town, to our village, and that we would have the opportunity to come to a place like this and learn and grow. and." dream dreams that otherwise there wouldn't be the opportunity to dream. It made it all worth it. Yeah. And it helped me to understand why it was a 15 year struggle to get to that point right. because there are so many lives are at stake. This wasn't about bricks and mortar and, and a, and a, and a place, a building called the freedom center, but it's about the life that will come come to life sure. mm-hmm. uh, because it's there mm-hmm. and I think as Westerners we, we don't necessarily see something like that in the same way but in a place that has nothing no place for them to go no place for families to gather no place for women to hang out in a culturally appropriate way this becomes a haven for them and just opens the doors to relationships that we would never have access to otherwise. Just reminds
1: me of Isaiah 61, that Jesus has come to set the captives free. Right. And, and here you call it the Freedom Center, but what a beautiful place for them, as you said, to meet and connect without fear. And that hopelessness that they feel, can be destroyed, and I love how you said it, that they can dream dreams, things that they never thought never they would thought they see can. happen in sure. their lifetime. And I know you're sharing Jesus with them, you know, those that are running this Freedom Center, those there's a lot of opportunity to hear about the gospel, to hear about Jesus there for these college Amen. students and beyond.
0: Amen. Amen. Anybody else have any questions as we wrap up? We know, Heather, you've got another appointment coming up, no. so this has just been a joy. Anybody? I'm just hearing how that affected you, Jessica. Yeah. What a blessing, her story.
3: Can you share a little bit about the programs that the Freedom Center does or what the outreach looks like on a practical level with the students? Or at the yeah,
2: to- absolutely. So um, the Freedom Center really is, you know, in the Middle East, everything rises and falls on relationships and, and building trust within the community. So the Freedom Center kind of, is a tool to build that trust and to meet the real tangible needs of the people in the community. So we're teaching English, which is the biggest thing that they want. Everybody wants to learn English. So we're teaching these English classes and so students can actually graduate from our English program. They can take the TOEFL, they can go study abroad, Uh, so it opens up a lot of opportunities for them. Then we have a computer lab uh, where we teach computer skills, another huge need across the region uh, then we have a coffee shop that uh, I think would would look really cool and in, in Dallas <laughs> uh, if I do say so myself so a beautiful coffee shop that has um, internet stations and uh, a cinema screen so we can turn it into a movie theater on the weekends um, and then we have a, a place that we want to launch a business incubator and help young people um, start uh, pursuing their, their dreams and creating businesses that can help them build their futures. And then we have a boutique, a women's boutique, um, where we sell uh, handicrafts and things that vulnerable women in the, in the communities have have created. So very multi-purpose park and playground. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just a beautiful place.
1: Sounds like going to be an amazing place here. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, if we really. would love it here. We know that those women and everyone that comes is going to, is going to feed them. It's going to yes. birth life.
2: That's so cool. that's what we want. I, for people who live in the Dallas area, I say it's like a little, a Hope Center. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it looks. Right. It actually looks a lot like the Hope Center. It's just a little bit smaller. Yeah. Wow. Yeah.
0: Praise God. Okay, Bruce, you got yes, one. Heather,
3: I have a question too. I mean, you have a unique perspective because of you've, from all the way to imprisonment in Afghanistan, to your ministry in Iraq, to the current events right now, help us process the big picture. I mean, as you, you're so unique in there, how do we understand what the Lord's doing now in this region? You know, you had mentioned within 24 hours, things just unraveled in Afghanistan, but then you've got the whole, of what you're doing in the Freedom Center. What is your perspective as far as God's plan and how you are seeing him at work there?
2: Yeah, I'm, I think that's a really important question and I'm really glad you asked it. You know, I think if I can be really honest and transparent, I think as, West, as Westerners and as Western Christians, we really have miscalculated and misunderstood that part of the world so significantly. And I think it's been part of the reason we're not more effective in the region. And um, one of the things that we really need to be willing to do is to get into the soil of these nations and these communities and really understand who they are and how they think and why they think the way they think. And I've been in... uh, The Kurdish region of Iraq now almost 20 years and I'll tell people that I didn't understand that region even a bit until I was there 10 years.
1: Mm. Interesting.
2: Living there full-time for a decade coming out of Afghanistan Taliban prison I had no idea what I didn't know Mm. and now that I've been there about 20 years and seen a lot and lived in with local families it's really changed the way I view the region and the way I view how we build relationships and and impact people's lives. And so I think the biggest thing is that we have to help people to begin to think differently because the message that we carry is so antithetical to everything they've ever known, everything that they've ever been taught. And so just being desperate doesn't necessarily make it any more any easier to, to embrace it. We have to help them start to think differently. And that trust that we build with them is so essential. Because if they if they can trust us, then they can trust the message that we carry. And um and so it's a very slow intentional journey and it's not it's not super quick it takes time um and it takes really getting into the way they think and how they live and becoming a part of that with them and so um people are very open they they want to know truth they want to know um the jesus that we know but there's so many barriers to that. We have to help build bridges so that they can get over those barriers to actually get to the point where they can receive him. And so, um, I mean, that's why something like the Freedom Center becomes so important because that's a tool. That's that's building bridges. That's building trust. And that's meeting the needs of the people without prejudice, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. no matter what they decide to do with the message of the one wow. we love. Wow. You know?
1: It's unconditional love. It's unconditional. you not expecting something it's in It's unconditional.
2: Return. And um, so, you know, the Middle East is in a very fragile place, and there's a lot of challenges. And I think the breakthrough will come when the people of God stay and suffer with them. Mm-hmm.
0: Ooh.
1: And boy, have you done that, Heather.
0: So, wow. Your life is a picture of that for sure. And mm-hmm. that this might be the place to end, building bridges into the Muslim communities. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not easy. It takes a lot of time, a lot of prayer, face time, reaching out to them. So mm-hmm. Heather, it's just been uh, a blessing to have you on our Program. What do you think, guys? Yeah. What do you think? Yeah. this awesome? Yeah. Thank you. Praise God. Thank Praise you. God. And well, I'm you, we thankful
2: for the way that you guys are helping uh, the Western Church understand uh, the Muslim mm-hmm. world more and more. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you. Because we have a role to play. We have a really important role to play. And so, thank you for mm-hmm. telling the stories of the people. Mm-hmm. And God's doing there and the needs that they have oh, and thank you. hope that many many more will become a part of what God's doing in that part of the world. Amen. Amen.
1: Amen. Well, Heather, all of us sitting in this circle admire you. Mm -hmm. You are a woman that carries holy boldness. Um, Holy boldness, I always say, is a little different than regular boldness. Regular old boldness can be cloaked in pride or arrogance or self confidence. You know, it's all in ourselves. But holy boldness reflects the one that we're seeking to emulate. And of course, that's Jesus. You know, you carry the fruit of the Spirit. Um, It's bold, but it's cloaked in the fruit of the Spirit. And so, how can those people that you are ministering to not help, but love you and trust you because you have willingly laid down your life, not once, but many times for these dear men and women. And um, not just your life, but your finances and your time. You just said yourself, you've lived there 20 years. And you said something earlier that really... um, really kind of locked in my mind and you said people are saying that you're more Kurdish now than you are Americans
2: right it's 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 weird to come back to the U.S. um, from time to time because I I do in some ways I feel like I've become more Kurdish that's beautiful um, it's it's been a privilege to get to be a part of such a special people. Mm. Mm.
0: Praise well, God. Thank
1: you for what you're doing. Yes, you. We're honored you. to call you sister thank and you. friend.
0: That's right. And want to partner <clears throat> with you too. So. Well, right.
2: We're waiting for we're you. We're waiting <laughs> okay. for you guys to come. Okay. <laughs> we'll be there when you guys get there. Well, well what, what, a po- on.
0: what a podcast today. And it's been a group effort. Yeah, so right. uh, I'm Tom Good Doyle.
2: To do I'm right. Joanne
1: Doyle.
3: I'm Bruce Peppin. Tommy Doyle.
1: Jessica Lash.
0: Gina Castleberry, and we've been interviewing Heather Mercer. Thrilling interview. Thank you. Yes, Heather. And thanks for guys. being with us on Good News from the Middle East.